Welcome to Philly Coco Presents Side Project Spotlight, Episode 44. This is developer's journey to making cool stuff. I'm Kotaro. I'm Steve. And I'm Aaron. And we are Philly Coco, a Philadelphia-based Coco Heads community focused on Apple development. That primarily, but not exclusively, means iOS, Mac, TVOS, and watchOS development. Philly Coco's true desire is to take you hot. What's it? And now reality OS. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah, now reality OS. All right, let me Sorry. finish off real quick. Really, Coco's true desires to take you higher on your own developer journey. Well, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> yes. I should I should have added the fact that yes, now thanks to WWDC's uh reveals, Vision OS is going to be a thing and something I'll need to append to my intro going forward. So um having said all that, how did you guys uh what do you guys think so far from any, um, I mean, I, I totally missed our bingo. Um, I didn't get anything in our bingo card that would actually match bingo, but, um, I don't know. I think it was a pretty good WWDC, huh? arguably one of the best. Yeah. I thought it was one of the best WWDCs I've seen in years. It was full of new stuff, not just the vision OS stuff, but the Swift stuff, Swift data. Which finally, I I was so happy about that one. Uh, I I actually smiled uh, in a so in a rare rare event. But the funny thing is, today is not entirely about just reviewing all that happened in WWDC and how we how poorly we made our, our bingo cards again. <laughs> yeah, or how poorly we done our bingo cards. Uh, <laughs> we have a guest today. Um, this uh, person, uh, I. Learned about mostly through when I was on my Swift UI journey. Um, I discovered his YouTube videos uh, discussing a lot of Swift UI um, uh, uh, things around core data, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking yeah. Of, of Swift data. Um, so it, it, if you've gone around the YouTube um, uh, rabbit hole uh, for iOS development, his videos come up constantly. Um, and I've since then, I've followed him on Twitter. Uh, I have known that he's done a lot of tutorials on Udemy. Um, he is an iOS developer and a uh, content creator. <laughs> and um, he is also an instructor. His name is Muhammad Azam. Welcome, Muhammad. Or Azam, as you would like to be called. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate yeah. you... Uh, um, sparing some time. I'm sure you're a very busy person in that regard. Um, I was wondering if you can give our audience an introduction of, um, kind of expound on what we just said. Maybe I'm, I know if I haven't completely said everything. So, Sure, sure. Uh, I started iOS development probably around like 2010. Before that, I was doing a lot of .NET stuff, ASP.NET, C Sharp. So 2010 is where I bought my first iPhone, I bought my first Mac, and started developing applications and worked for a very large company as a consultant uh, here in Houston, Texas, but also produced my own apps for gardening, which were featured by Apple a long time ago, probably 2013, 2012, if I'm guessing it correctly. And probably around 2015, 2016, I got into Udemy and started creating courses and now I have more than 40 different courses on iOS, Flutter, web development, uh, so a lot of different technologies. And these days, 
I do work full-time for a company called Digital Crafts, and I work as a full uh, stack web development instructor. And I've been doing that for last uh, six plus six years. Well, I'm a, I'm taking the, uh, the course you did on server-side Swift, and uh, I just purchased the new Swift data course, which I'm sure we'll be talking about Swift data today. So I, I, I found Aslam, I found you on the uh, YouTube as well. I think Coltro, you, you and I found, found Aslam independently. Yes. You know, we, and, and we, I, I think I said once, hey, I found this video on like uh, on core data or something. Look at this. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've, I've seen that. I've seen that guy. So you, you've been very, your, your content has been very valuable to, uh, to us personally in the last uh, year. Especially around, um, I think at the time, uh, I was just looking for videos around SwiftUI and particularly around SwiftUI's um, interactions with core data. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it, the, the, two, <laughs> the two have an interesting relationship in that regard in terms of how they interact. Um, so that I found that to be very uh, helpful in, um, when I was building um, a few uh, sample projects to try to get a sense of it. Um, what goes into, um, I guess, what, uh, I noticed a lot of your content, at least on YouTube side of things, is around SwiftUI, and that's, I don't know if there's any ones that came before. I think there were a few, there were actually a few before that, right? So I guess, is your, is it fair to say that your YouTube channel is much more Swift-focused or iOS development-focused in that sense? Yes, 100%. Yeah, I think it's mainly iOS development-focused. I did recently uploaded some videos for React and Redux and all that stuff, but I would say 99% of the time it is SwiftUI or iOS-related videos. Um, And whenever something new comes out, like Swift Data came out, I think, last week, so I created like a small video on that because I was already working on a Udemy course for Swift Data, so I published a little bit parts of those courses onto onto YouTube just so that people will have an idea. So yeah, most of them I would say, as you said, it's uh, it's Swift UI, Swift Data, or iOS related. I was wondering, just as a broad um, stroke, and how you felt about the WWDC uh, reveals. What did you think about A, around Swift, and maybe even to some degree about the Vision OS? Yeah, I was definitely excited with uh, the Swift data part, obviously, and the new advancements in the Swift that they're doing, like the Swift macros. And hopefully Swift macros will become much easier to write because right now it's uh, it's a lot of stuff going on in Swift macros. That If you need to create a macro, then it's a lot of work that you have to set up to create those things, but I think it might just uh, become a little bit easier. For the vision stuff, I've all, always been interested in augmented reality, uh, like playing around with AR kit, then reality kit. So definitely, I think it's a step forward, and I'm looking forward playing with uh, Vision OS or the new stuff that come, uh, that they uh, published. I haven't really seen any videos. WWDC videos on it at this point, but uh, once I started watching those videos, learning from them, I'm definitely going to try it out because I think you can just run it in your Xcode or in your simulator, like your desktop simulator. So I don't have to buy a device to to see it in action. I can just use my desktop computer. Oh yeah, when they release the SDK, when sometime in the next month or so. Okay. Yeah, you can do. Um, you should be able to do 
like like regular 2D applications, I think, through a simulator. I mean, you might be able to do everything, but the, uh, I, I don't, I, I, I where did I see this? I, I thought I I saw an interview or some something text that said that uh, they were going to have, uh, Apple was going to let you submit things for them to review and give you mm-hmm. feedback on. Because like, there's not going to be a lot of these available at first, so like they want you, you know, know just, they're not going to they're not going to sell you a dev kit. I mean, I don't know. I think there's probably going to be an, an application are, are, process. Awesome. Are you gonna you're gonna get one? No, you're gonna get a no. A yeah, 30, I don't know. Thirty starting starting at thirty five hundred. That, that's the way. I mean, that's probably not what the dev kit is going to be, right? And it would be refundable, sure. but still, sure. I don't know. I mean, why not? <laughs> I, I uh, so just based on the the like firsthand accounts like if you if you watched uh the talk show that came out yesterday the john gruber's talk show mm-hmm. uh they do talk about who he talks about his experience in there, and i've read some other reviews i saw joanna stern's uh, uh video about it it seems really remarkable like like something that i want to try and even without having used it just the consistency of the positive feedback from everybody who's gone through the golden path demo is what I call it uh, is, is really it tells me that this is something special. It's not, it's not really equivalent to what we've seen before in the market, just in, in terms of sophistication and Apple seems really intent on trying to make something that you can do things with. So it's not just an entertainment focused device, but I also got the, uh, the strong impression that they're not a hundred percent sure <laughs> what those things are. And they, they really want developers to spend this time before next year uh, coming up with ideas. Mm. You know, I mean, at least that's my, you, my impression. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> did you have any particular inspirations that you're willing to share in that sense, Azam? Or is that something that you're actually targeting as an opportunity for yourself? I think, I mean, it's definitely a step in the right direction. I think it, I'm expecting that it may take maybe half a decade for it to be more like a five years or even eight years to to be at the point that where it's more useful. Because right now it's very much like bulky and you can pro- probably just, you know, wear it just kind of like indoors, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But I think if they, and, and this is like future, it might be like eight years, it might be like 20 years. What I at least want is that you cannot make a distinction between AR glasses and just the glasses that I'm wearing, like normal glasses. So I can just mm-hmm. take it outside and then I can see all those AR-related stuff and not look dorky wearing those big stuff. <laughs> or hanging around. Yeah. So, you, don't, um, you, don't want, yeah. you don't want to be a Google Glass hole and yeah. just like, you know, take kind of like, of, I, I guess <laughs> kind of like Google Glasses, but, uh, you mm-hmm. know, with all the features, yeah, with all the features mm-hmm. that Apple Apple unveiled so all of that, but obviously it's it's very hard to do that kind of like a lightweight version of it. I don't even know if mm-hmm. it's possible. I think it might be possible, but it's very we're not there yet. Yeah. No, not 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 anywhere close. I think that's why they you know Apple released it the way it is because they, I think they definitely have the same idea you have. They would prefer something like that. It's just technically impossible right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, this to me seems like the, like the single most advanced take at this kind of product that we've ever seen like i think that that's fair to say like no one's come close to this level of sophistication uh on the market anyway so if this is the best we can do it's impressive but it's still nowhere near what we all want which is exactly what you're describing i mean i wear sunglasses all the time Uh, i have blue eyes very sensitive to the sun (laughs) so uh if i could wear sunglasses 
and then later, you know, prescription glasses. I'm sure I'll have to need them at some point. Then, uh, you know, that's what I would want too. I want to be able to just wear them and get all those that AR stuff. And it does seem like Vision Pro and Vision OS is is primarily focused on on augmented reality, not yes. on full VR. Now you can dial it in. They talk about having these full experiences, but even when they talk about the full experience, they start by saying, "Oh, you can integrate it into your environment." Like they demo with like the planets or something, like in a museum I saw. It was, it was first, it was in the museum. It was like, it was in the physical space. And then you can dial in and have it seem like you're in space. Yeah. But th- they keep focusing primarily on AR. And then they also have features like if someone's looking at you and they come, they come in the room or something, it'll, it'll show them coming in. So you yeah. can see them kind of coming into your space. So you're, you're, and then if you look at them, they'll see your eyes. Like all these features to make it uh, less isolating than I think most of these products have been up till this point. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's, that gives you an idea of that uh, Apple's on that, on that trajectory towards AR. Yeah. yeah. And I do have a question since I haven't watched any video that was so busy with other stuff, but I do have a question. So maybe Aaron will have the answer to that. If right now I want to make a vision application with all this augmented reality on my desktop, is it possible to simulate that stuff or they haven't, or is it not? It will be when they release the SDK. Okay. It was, so was kind of a rare thing where they showed off an SDK and didn't actually release it. Okay. So right. It'll be coming out in, I don't know, they didn't give an exact date, but they said they implied later July. this month or yeah. July. Yeah, they implied July. This was, this was at early next year. Well, that was for the that was yeah, for the device. Yeah. Okay, uh, but during during the talk show, Gruber asked them about like what's early next year means. Like early next year, <laughs> so <laughs> you can assume March. Yeah, so I was like, I can no, assume no, March no. or April. Q one, Q one, Q one. Okay. Yeah, this is uh, this is a little unusual for Apple, right? I mean, they did they they did release uh, you know SDKs early for Apple Silicon, but. I don't remember last time they they said I get maybe it was the iPhone where they they said here's here's our new thing and but it, yeah. the thing is the iPhone you didn't have an SDK until version two right so you didn't have it until the next year when you can actually buy phones or is it three no it was yeah version two version because remember remember, yeah. remember the time when they were like hey here's an SDK it's called web apps okay yeah <laughs> I, I I blanked that out of my my memory <laughs> the sweet solution. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so late. And that was like one year. That was one like year. one year. And then, yeah, then we got the SDK. That, but but uh, what I mean is, it's I don't remember last time they, they said, here's a product. Here's, we don't even have an SDK for you yet. Uh, you know, but we, we hope that you'll build stuff for this, even though it's not coming out until, you know, early next year. Mm-hmm. The, the, I mean, I, I understand why they had to do it, but it, it does feel I a think, little unusual. I think maybe WatchOS was probably the closest. I mean, they still gave you the SDK, but they didn't give it to you right off. Yeah. Uh, they didn't give that one right off the bat. I don't remember. Yeah, it's it's close, though. It, it's it's getting on the borderline of, of like a very non-Apple thing where they normally do not show unfinished stuff. And yeah. this is not unfinished, but it's definitely far from finished. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like all the demos were the same. The same 30-minute Golden Path demo with under strict supervision. Uh, certain features they have not, no one's tried yet, like the uh, button for taking photos and stuff. So I, it definitely feels like, and they'll admit that the software is is far from from ready. So Azam, I was just kind of curious. Um, aside from Core Data, I'm sorry, uh, Swift Data, mm-hmm. was there anything, um, any new um, developer, any new frameworks or anything from a um, 
or aside from I guess data and um, macros that caught your interest that that piqued your interest I should say. Yeah, I think uh, MapKit inclusion in Cifio, I think the MapKit is definitely much more powerful. I think that's that's what's mm-hmm. something that they included and something called like a open API. I think that's for like a documentation, writing the documentation for your Vapor or server side apps. So that's something oh, that they included right. also, like for all the. Oh, I didn't know actions. about that. Wait, how did how, how does that work again? I haven't. I mean, I haven't watched the video, but I mm. think it's some sort of automated tool that's going to write endpoint. You can test your endpoints and all of that stuff. But I haven't watched any of those videos yet. Um, yeah, I meant okay. to watch. But that yeah, one. I mean, I, I, I actually haven't really watched most. I mean, the most of the videos I watch are pretty much Swift data. Uh, but uh, I am planning to watch. I do have a long flight coming up, so I'll watch in those videos in the flight. Got a few hundred hours. So. <laughs> <laughs> just, and yeah. like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, just do it at two x. You should be okay. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I mean, some of them I can't do too. Some of them got to do it like slower yeah, two x. But it's it's uh, there's a lot of content but, this year. I, I watch like a lot that, of videos, that, but. That's with macro. I feel like I'm going to have to watch that at least 10 times to even grok what's going on. Um, I mean, I like the implementation of, uh, of uh, Swift just, macros. It's Just open the template and play around with it. I know, I know. Well, yeah, but um, the Swift macros thing is a good one to talk about briefly because uh, Swift macros are the foundation for some other features like Swift data, mm-hmm. uh, observable, um, and model. But, but like, What's a little confusing is that they there are there is a type of macro that when you use it looks exactly like a property wrapper, yeah. <laughs> but it's not. So that I found I under, kind of understand why they did that, but it's a little bit confusing because at the call site so, you can't tell them apart. Correct me if I'm wrong. You cannot you can inspect a macro, yes, of mm-hmm. like its implementation, but you can't inspect a property wrapper. Correct. Was that a okay? Because a property wrapper is just like a defined what is it like a protocol that you implement? So. Yeah, they don't have any any way of looking at that, but the macros they do because the macros are just creating Swift code, hmm. it's rewriting your code or adding your code. They they have like a, a bunch of different types depending on the use case for them, what you're what you're having them do, and what they apply to. Hmm. Oh, yeah, they need to work on those names. Yeah, too many yeah, the, na- <laughs> the names I, are like I, I'm I, like, I, yeah. When I have, I, when V two, they'll like collapse them all down to like mm-hmm. three, like yeah. they did with the Swift yeah. data property wrappers. Uh, yeah, but you know, with with the with the the macro support and observable, um, they're they're obviously rem- like removing uh, combine, or they're removing the mm-hmm. parts of combine like that we deal with. I don't know if they're still implementing it with like combine and back- background. I don't know, but but they're remo- they're simplifying things a lot, as I said. State environment, uh, what bindable mm-hmm. are the three like like property wrappers you need to worry about now. So my understanding. And correct me if I'm wrong about understanding this. Bindables is kind of like binding, but it's for binding for observable yeah. um, mm. variables. So it lets it lets you. I, I think it, I think the big thing is like it all works with the observable stuff. So if you have something that's bindable, like you can you can query the the key paths on the the uh, object all the way up. To, okay. Like I like I think the like the thing about observable that um, seems to be that it's just it's just more like more advanced than we've had before. So not only does it, the, the stuff, because it's uh, using a macro to set it up, um, make it easier to, to, to do it. You don't have to publish on everything, but they made a big deal about how you could, 
you know, like you didn't have to mark things as as observed objects, and you could just kind of grab the key paths, you know, like the properties on the thing, and everything would just kind of work. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's 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 a little bit confusing. I agree, though, that it's it seems a little bit confusing because like they have they have a binding and a bindable, and like mm-hmm. I think that the thing is you just use. You choose one with um, observable and one if you're not using observable. I think that's yeah. what we're doing because I don't. They haven't officially deprecated it, and I don't think I didn't see the documentation. Hmm. No. Yeah, I think I think someone posted on Twitter that they had a chat with one of the Apple engineers, and he asked the question that are these things just going away? Like binding is going away, and we should start using bindable. And the Apple engineer told the same thing that no, they're not going away, but. Uh, they're used for different purposes because bindable is for observable uh, macro and observable macro mm-hmm. can only be applied to class or reference type. So, oh, okay. so it, it's not even going to work on structs, I guess, or value types. If you do have a value type, gotcha. probably you should use binding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, okay. That makes be, sense. And this, this is still iOS 17 only mm. for yes. this stuff. So, if you if you uh, want to yeah. if you're building something like I'm I'm building something now, I would love to use some of this stuff, but I may have to just use keep using the Swift six the sixteen iOS sixteen stuff and then transition later. But uh, fortunately, it does seem relatively easy and straightforward to to switch something. So if you have an observable object, switching it to model is mostly deleting code yeah. in, in most implementations. So I think that's uh, that's going to be really cool. So I think it'll be an uh, easier path to migrate to this. Than maybe uh, you might expect. I have a question about Swift data. I don't know if you've messed around at all with um, Swift data's integration with CloudKit. It, that's um, how you handle um, the persistent shared containers. So if I wanted to share between two um, two iCloud users, basically, mm. um, how how does Swift data handle that, or does it handle that, or is that an unknown? <laughs> Yeah, I have not played that much with i iCloud or CloudKit, uh, mm-hmm. especially with Swift Data yet. So I know that their properties have to be marked optional. I mean, I might be wrong on this one, but if you want to sync something, I think those properties have to be marked optional to be synced to iCloud. But uh, no, oh no, <laughs> I don't. I'm, I'm still guessing. Uh, it might, it, I might be completely wrong on this one. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But uh, okay. or maybe the relationship yeah. have to be marked optional. One of these things have to be marked optional. Well, I mean, it, it seems like Swift data is a it's 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 was, still using the like a lot of the core data persistence layer stuff. So I, I would assume that that hasn't really necessarily changed too much the the level of the stack that's doing the syncing. So mm-hmm. um, right. that would make sense right. if you still had to 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 take into account. Because I feel like the pathway to just doing a straight core data cloud kit sync is straight, fairly straightforward still, right? If you're using Swift Data, mm-hmm. um, Swift Data core, uh, cloud kit integration, I'm, that's what I'm hoping. Because in the, in that world, like if all you care about is just storing a, a synced copy on cloud kit, you know, all you're just doing is changing your models locally, and you know, assuming that you do your correct configurations on cloud kit side, it all works with very little, you know, setup. Um, I'm just sort of curious if I want to get a little cute with it, like have a public database, for example, how does that, you know, how would that work? Um, but uh, apparently none of us got to that part of the documentation <laughs> in the week. Cause I didn't, I didn't, I didn't read, I didn't read the, I, I didn't, I, I didn't read, I didn't watch that video yet. <laughs> no, I watched all the videos on Swift data directly, but I didn't 
see I didn't watch you anything. Didn't it was anything. about the cloud, okay. about the cloud stuff. So we all we all missed that. Mm. But you know what okay. I did do? I did go into the the Slack channel, uh, and I I found a really interesting uh, uh, question. Someone was asking about how do you build more elaborate apps with uh, you know with this stuff, and the answer struck me as very much what Azam here wrote about in his giant uh, architecture paper architecture patterns we'll it was, have a it, link to yeah we'll have to I have a link to it because it was it was very similar they were like they basically basically the apple engineer was like yeah you can have like a container view that interfaces with your model directly and then you can create like observables smaller subset of observables and pass them down or pass them into through the environment that way and so you can have and you can have different things you can have different um uh like uh you know, you know, sub subgroups of your views can have different, you know, pieces attached to them that you would mostly use to go through the environment. So, like, it's in here. I couldn't figure out how to get a link to it <laughs> to share it, but it's it's in there. And that, and I, I, I was like, wow, this sounds exactly like what uh, what Ozan was writing about. So, I don't know if it's just we- uh, if it's just you, you just discovered what they were doing, or like you they read your stuff. I don't know which which way it went, but I'm gonna say that you inspired Apple there. I mean, I think for with Swift data, especially with the core data, uh, and there are some examples with Swift data. I think it's called birding example or some sort of a birding. Oh, the, app. the the backyard the birds. Backyard birds. Yeah. yeah. yeah and again, they are they're inserting the data, kind of like a hard coded data. At least from what I read, I mean, they're just they're not really allowing user to to insert it, I might be wrong, but it's just that when the app starts, they just generate the data and they insert it into the database and they just use that data, at least when I search for it. Yeah. But it looks like, well, since they're not inserting it, it kind of felt like that they are trying to use a little bit like active record pattern, although they were not really inserting it inside their models. But in other words, if I had to create a Swift data app I would probably use something similar to active record pattern because it kind of blends in nicely in there because it's kind of like a similar to ORM. Yeah, so the the active active record meaning like in the model class would have like a function that says save or whatever. Yes, yes. Yeah, Um, so uh, yeah, we we were looking at the backyard birds, Kothro and I at the Billy Coca meeting this -hmm. week and uh, it's it's pretty well architected. So what they do is they do create a... Um, like a database for the previews to use, and they insert all this data in there. It's it's very it's because it's, it's really just core data with a, a better front end for Swift. So they do a similar thing to what you would do in core data, and they create this uh, this container for it. But uh, and then they have a bunch of data that they generate for it. It's 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 pretty well architected. This thing actually, it's a good example app. Yeah, I mean it's pretty funny. Like they got rid of the whole model diagram or. Um, oh yeah, yeah. They got rid of that a while, a while ago. <laughs> they you know, the, the, do that all in, yeah, all the, in the core in data. Code. And that should have been a that should have been a a, a flag or a clue to us that they were going to go this route because mm-hmm. they're all about code code first. And uh, I, although I miss that view, I like to be able to see the relationships graphically. But maybe someone will make a third a third party app to, to do that or something. So you've explored different Swift architecture patterns. Um, from what I remember, MVVM, uh, Coordinator, Viper. Um, is there? Um, do you have any suggestions or um, what? When is 
when which architecture works best when? <laughs> yeah, so I've used MVVM. I use the uh, Redux architecture uh, and the container model, which is very common in uh, React applications. Um, I started with actually MVVM, just like most of, or pretty much everyone in 2019. But mm-hmm. after working for a couple of years, I just, I, it wasn't really working out because I was just writing way too much code to achieve very little. And I was ending up with like view model after view model after view model for, uh, for nothing. Uh, and most of my apps were server and client-based or client-server-based applications. So the source of truth in that was the server. So the source of truth wasn't really changing. It was always the server. So I went online, researched it, checked out a lot of different uh, Apple videos, especially, I think it's called Data Essentials in SysUI. Yeah, something like that. I, I remember from a few years ago. Really That's excellent. a good one. That's excellent. a good one. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think they have code sample for food truck application and Fruta application. Uh, but mm-hmm. the food truck application was using some sort of hard-coded stuff like JSON files or something. And most people don't know that they actually did create a web version of food truck application and they showed like a really like a split second clip of that in one of the session called Xcode server side Swift, something like that Ooh. in 2021. It's, it's literally a, for a split second, they show that code and I stumble upon that code, but after I have already implemented the, the way that I was implementing it uh, correctly. So that was just validating that, oh, okay, so Apple is also implementing it this way. That is exactly the same thing I'm doing. The only difference was I was using a class as my HTTP client or a web service, and Apple was using a struct. So I started using struct because there's no need to use a you know, class because it's all like stateless. But anyway, I mean, I moved from MVVM to something that people call it MV, which is just remove the view model because the view itself is the view model. So you don't really need another layer of anything. And that does not mean that you should just shove everything inside your view. That simply means that in a client server app, your view is going to talk to some sort of a model. I like to call aggregate model because that just provides the data to the whole app. But you can have multiple aggregate models. And the aggregate model is going to use some sort of HTTP client to make the request, get the data, and then populate the published properties, which I guess in iOS 17 will no longer be published, just some normal stuff. Um, And you can use that aggregate model in many different ways. I usually just inject it into an environment object so that everyone has access to it, and I'm done. So it's nice and easy and simple to understand. And I think that was the main problem, that it was so simple that other developers, when they read that or when they experienced that, they were like, this cannot be right because it's so simple. Yeah. You know, and the 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 Swift data, the, the Swift data implementation is basically that. Like they talk about, you set up your container, and you're probably going to do it off of the app or like the scene, uh, you know, high up in your in your view hierarchy, and you're just going to say, here's my container and here's my model, and you only need to give it the root object, and it will infer, you know, it'll 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 follow all the other all the properties in there to um so you don't have to actually put in every single model um you know class that you have in when you're setting up your container yeah 
and uh, that's what I understood it to be anyway, which which is like exactly like what you're talking about. So the the way I understand it was in my mind when I was reading this, I said that's uh, Asm's let's say that's aggregate root right there. You create your model, uh, your models and all the pieces of your model, and you can just put them all in there, or you can split it up and have multiple containers if you want. They talk about that too. Mm-hmm. So if you have part of your app that uses um, one, like, you know, something that's not being used elsewhere in the app. You don't need to have it all in the one aggregate route. You can just inject it at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. So they, they made it very, very simple to do. So you need just the, as far as I understand, you just need, like, the, the, the top level of the model that you want to track in Swift data. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and, you know, that has to be properly annotated, obviously, because by default it'll just look at all the properties and assume they're part of your model. And then that's it. You just do that, and you can set up containers however you want. Because there's no, there's no child containers, I, I think, anymore, like in core data, mm. or there's no child context. So mm. the way I think you do that kind of thing is just with other uh, containers, like model containers. Yeah, I think one of the things that I found with when I use the aggregate model pattern in the core data application, or even in, if you want to use in Swift data, that's fine. Um, but in, even in Apple example, what usually end up happening is in your view, you are persisting the information you're writing. Sometimes you're even writing your logic to persist that. Yeah. Um, I guess then you'll have to validate that if you want to, to do that, that's fine. Um, I mean, if you want, if you somehow can isolate the logic, the actual domain of your code inside the model, then it would be, it would be perfectly yeah. fine. Well, yeah. that's that's exactly what Apple does in their Backyard Birds app. Yeah, like they're they have a model, where they actually have more than one model. They have like a backyard model, they have a bird model, and then the uh, they have a whole bunch of other types that are part of that overall model. So they have a class called like Backyard, if I remember this right. And then there's like other types of backyards. There's like a bird model, and then there's like different th- properties of a bird, and they're all they're all different models, and they have them in directories. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then on the model class itself, there's functions, functions to okay. do things, to do to manipulate things. And I th- I think that's what I'm saying. I think they're they're on the same page or mm-hmm. as, as you are with this, mm-hmm. where the idea is that you uh, you you at least at some level, as I said in that that's that, that uh, Slack discussion. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. The one idea of structuring a complicated app was to have like a container view that directly accesses your model. And then you can create whatever kind of form, like a view model form, whatever you want to call it, to send to down the down the view hierarchy if you want. Or mm. you can attach it to as an environment object somewhere else too in your view hierarchy. Like however you want to inject it in there. There's really only two ways to inject things in, in Swift UI, right? You can do it through like a through like the um init or and you pass it directly, or you can do it through an environment. And mm. what Apple seems to be doing this year is is really saying, hey, the preferred way of doing this stuff is environment now. They're they're really pushing. That's why they said that you have state and environment now because to yeah. me this is telling me that the the kind of architecture patterns are going to work best, most naturally. We'll say most naturally uh, with SwiftUI are going to be ones where you're you're grabbing the model from the environment and then doing things, hmm. and and you know that's how it goes. And then you're injecting state to maybe child views in a limited way. Like if you just need to have like a detail screen or something, that makes sense. You're not going to, yeah. you know, you're going to say, I want this particular thing. But then besides that, you're going to have everything just through the environment, which I know can feel 
really uh, dirty <laughs> to some mm. developers, I guess. But it makes sense to yeah. me. I mean, I, and and they, I think they've improved how uh, the with observable that your UI will not update unnecessarily. I think that's a, been an issue with some larger mm. um, observable object right type of models mm. where where like if any part of the view touched it, like it would. If if somewhere else, you know, you updated something else because the whole observable object would then get would trigger like a view update or something like that. Mm. So, does Aaron is is that is that is that true, Aaron? Like, was it was an issue with um like excessive view updating if you had like a yeah, complicated I object? I Think so. I don't know. I don't know, but they made a big deal about mentioning it this year. I think That's it was I yeah. I think it may may have been related to whenever something changes, the view needs to be evaluated, right. uh, which is like a diffing, and which was pretty fast, anyways. So I don't know if it was causing any issues. So now, at least from my understanding, they're saying that the view is not even going to get evaluated unless it's going to re-render. So that small performance hit that you were getting, now it's going to be gone. I was I was wondering, um, speaking of Swift architecture, uh, the Swift server side of things, how has that evolved uh, since I remember maybe two, one even one year ago, people were like, oh, that's not an option. You know, mm. it doesn't have this or that. Like, is there, are we at a point where Swift on the server-side server Swift can be considered a production-ready um, kind of architecture, um, choice for mm. a back-end architecture? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I use Vapor 1, 2, 3, 4, and I think we're now in the fifth version, I believe. Um, I think in all the versions till like 4, they were using some sort of like an event loop, like a future-based architecture, which was a little bit more complicated to understand. But in Vapor 5 or whatever the latest version is, they have changed it to async in a way. And that made a lot of difference because now it's much more intuitive, much more seamless. It's basically like, like I'm writing an Express or Node application, so it's much nicer to work with, and it's uh, it's just much cleaner. Um, I think there are a lot of companies. Apple is using Vapor at some parts. I think BMW is using, I think, at some parts. They're not as many companies as if you compare it to ASP.NET or Ruby on Rails or Express and Node, but there are some companies that are using it on production. So it's definitely uh, have really evolved in a very positive direction. Well, would you build a server with Swift? Like, what would be your go-to choice right now to build like a a, a kind of standard API server for something not too complicated? So I would probably use Express, but my reasoning for using Express is because of the language JavaScript. Now, not like JavaScript is good or bad or anything, but I think. The main advantage or one of the main advantage you get from using some sort of a dynamic language is that you can just quickly create these anonymous types and return it. So they're not like strongly bound to something. But if I had to do the same thing in ASP.NET using C Sharp or even Vapor with Swift, I have to create a type that I'm returning. And then I have to create a type on the client side because that's going to be the one who's consuming it. Or I can create a Swift package and then share the types between them. Um, so yeah, yeah. So that is so extra you, work. So if you're doing, if you use something like Vapor, mm-hmm. you can actually sh- you do something like share the types between yeah. both clients. But yeah, I, I've done C Sharp. I used to do a lot of Perl 
and and uh, one of the things that I've always felt about the, a lot of these languages, the more type uh, specific languages, the, the I like the I like the dynamic languages for doing backends. Yeah. I mean, I liked it for that very reason. And Swift to me, even to this day, feels like often like I'm in a straitjacket. They they made it a lot nicer, like a lot easier to to build these types now. There's a lot less ceremony as they go on and evolve the language, which is really helpful. But it's still there. There's just everything. There's so much types and there's protocols and it's like, oh my God. But uh and doing it on the server side, haven't tried it with Swift, but when I do it with C sharp, I have that same experience. It was like now I gotta create a type and then like I gotta create a whole tree of types. Yeah. Just to model something pretty simple. And mm-hmm. uh uh and you know, depending on the version of C sharp that's you know easier or, or more ceremony. So, so so what is what is Swift missing to get it to that? Maybe if they can <laughs> And I don't think that's going to happen, but maybe they can include some way to create these anonymous objects, uh, which obviously is going completely against the what Swift is telling us to be safe and strongly typed. Because now, if if you do that, if you allow that, then everybody is going to be like, okay, forget it. I'm just going to use anonymous object. No yeah, more classes, <laughs> no more structs, which is uh, obviously going completely against everything that they are teaching us. So I don't yeah. think that's going to happen, but... Uh, that is something missing. Well, it's it's like people people yeah. like lo- going with uh, type erasing type erasures all the time. Mm. Like don't don't do that. Yeah, I mean the whole the, this is like a philosophical problem. We're never gonna re- like resolve this because the, the the fundamental design assumptions of Swift were that we it needs this and it does have certain advantages. But there's always going to be a contingent that I, I am part of. And it sounds like maybe Azam is somewhat of a part of this too. That that really sees a lot of value in the dynamic language approach when you know what you're doing and when you maybe you're using appropriate testing uh, procedures around it. Like that was the thing with Perl. Perl worked great as long as you did TDD essentially. Like that's what I used to do. I wrote all these tests for everything because that was the only, only way you would know because you didn't get any help from the compiler really, you know, like there was no compiling going on. So it was a, that that's the thing I would say about dynamic languages that that even more than you, you should be doing testing or, or test driven development to some degree for stuff. You absolutely have to be doing dynamic things. So I, sure. I I haven't tried anything with the the back end, but your your course is making me interested in doing it for that very reason you said earlier about being able to share some of the uh, the Swift types. Because if I'm only if I'm for my personal project, like a side project, I'm not going to be making um, an Android app. Mm-hmm. At least not anytime soon. I'm I'm probably not going to be making like a full fledged web app. I'm probably going to be making an iOS app or a Vision OS app or something. And so, you know, it might actually be more efficient for me to just do a backend in some, in Swift and just am, kill two birds with one stone or whatever. I guess I am curious about, um, slightly off topic in this sense, but... Um, we have topics on this what? podcast? No, we always, we always <laughs> go off the rails constantly. Um, Azam, I was thinking, you have a lot of, like, different mix of topics that you talk about, uh, whether it's through your YouTube video, your articles, or whatever. Uh, or your Udemy courses. Um, do you have anything that sort of drives that decision of which topics you pick? Um, for the courses, um, it really, yeah, I guess it really depends. Like right now I'm working with, uh, you already know, like Swift Data course. Uh, sometimes on Udemy, it is good to be the first. Sometimes, not always. And I think it maybe in Swift Data, that, that can be those uh, things. So that's why I created like a, two-hour course and I published it. Obviously, I'm just adding new content to it. 
Um, so the things that yeah, really interest me are data related, augmented reality, yeah, a little bit definitely. Um, that is usually new things definitely drive me towards whatever I'm building the course. Or if I can create a course and I'm also trying to do a workshop on it. So like I'm also working on a create ML course because I have to go to New York in September and do a workshop on create ML on TriSwift. So that's why I'm also working on a create ML course. I'll kind of like kill two birds with a with one stone. Oh, do you have a preview of what you're going to talk about with create ML? Mm -hmm. or... Yeah, I think it will be a workshop. So it will be very much hands-on. Uh, it will start with basically just integrating an existing model to your Swift application. All the code for Swift application is already written. So you don't, nobody needs to write anything over there. Uh, then there will be object detection. So everything is using create ML. So mostly it's like you're just clicking buttons. Sometime you'll have to jump into playgrounds to, to use create ML. So I'll show you that. Uh, object detection, image recognition, sentiment analysis, which kind of works. It doesn't work all the time because it's kind of like you have to find out the sentiment. Is it like a positive sentiment or negative sentiment? So I'm just using financial news to, to create those sentiments uh, or to create the positive and negative. And then we have a tabular data to find out the prices of uh, used car sales for only Honda and Toyota, apart from a long sales of car. And the final thing that I haven't started is the on-device learning. So I haven't really started on that, but that's, that will be the last section. Yeah. Uh, is this, so is this a course that you have, you're in, it's in development, or do you have a course about CreateML? No, this right is now? currently in development. So, in development, yeah, yeah, so it's, I haven't released it yet. It's going to be another course I'm going to buy. Because yeah. <laughs> like we're actually really interested in the in this stuff, uh, yeah. we we haven't done much. I, I haven't done much directly on it. Uh, mm -hmm. A few years ago, I was trying to mess around with it a little bit. I think you you Aaron's come from Aaron, Aaron, Aaron has, right? <laughs> done a lot of Aaron particularly. Stuff. Well, I've done some like Python data science stuff. Not too much with CreateML. So mm -hmm. it's interesting I've, to see like the tabular data framework. It's like seems like it's really trying to mimic some of the stuff they're doing in Python. Oh, I didn't even see that talk. There's a there's a talk about it, or I don't know if there is. I didn't see anything about that. It, it's, it exists. So there's <laughs> a tab. What is it? It's it's a thing for representing data so, uh, in tabular form. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the name. Steve. All these we things do it. Are like manipulating <laughs> and. I, or, or analyzing, is that, is that a fair yeah. assessment of like yeah. what it would do? So like yeah, whatever. They, of... they represent it as like, oh, you're going to use this data to train a machine learning model. And it's like mm -hmm. a con really convenient format without any, getting into something complicated. Nice. Like, yeah. like I think yeah, one of the examples for the tabular that I'm going to use probably in the course and in the workshop will be if you have a spreadsheet of car prices and you have columns like year of the car, make of the car, the model of the car, and the miles driven, then you can use that particular spreadsheet. You, you can import the CVS, CSV file into your model. You can train a model that can predict prices for the car based on the data that you have. So That's cool. Um, right. I, I remember the talk from a couple of years ago where they were doing uh, st stuff on with visual things. That was really interesting to me where they were they did like an exercise app that would mm. like count how many sit-ups you're doing or something like that. 
I I want I was looking at doing one of them uh, at the time. I don't think I had a I think it was a little while ago. I don't think I had an M1 or anything at the time. So the last time I tried to do something with CreateML was like an old <laughs> Intel machine. It was like too slow. Mm. But uh, I thought about doing that. You just need you needed to get a whole bunch of data for the training, and I remember that was a bit of a yeah a, a, a problem for me at the time. So I didn't I couldn't get access to it. But you can do this with visual stuff too. What I'm saying, so you can build apps that, and there are some award winning apps that I think are built on this kind of technique where you know it'll it'll examine like basketball throws or golf swing techniques stuff like that, mm-hmm. and uh, that's all oh. machine learning yeah. stuff, right? And you know so. You can do some cool stuff, and it's it's a lot easier to do on Apple's platforms than you might expect. Uh, just out of curiosity, is on. Mm-hmm. Um, are you planning to have like a demo or some kind of workshop around uh, image detection? So, like using the CreateML mm-hmm. app to um, take a whole bunch of images. Uh, let's say, uh, I think the typical example is like ve- different types of vegetables, and be able to detect them and how you can organize them properly and properly label each one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, so the, that will be a part of the workshop. It will be part of the course. And I think you'll find that it's so simple, like literally you're just creating folders if you're using CreateML and you're just labeling them. This is a tomato. This is a, you know, something else. This is a pepper. And you're just feeding the whole folder to CreateML and CreateML will create the model for you and you're done. Yeah, that was my yeah. brief experience trying to yeah. use it. Was you just you create, create <laughs> I, uh, folders. I of, tried, of but stuff. It, yeah. it just it just wasn't like, oh, that's not a tomato. <laughs> well, maybe you didn't have enough. To, it takes a lot of it I takes know, a lot it of takes data, a lot. and you have to have. Do, an, do you yeah. have like a minimum yeah. suggestion in terms of that in that regard? Like I've heard it was like you could minimally do like get away with like ten to twenty, yeah. but maybe I need more. Yeah, ten to twenty should be okay. Um, like vegetables. Yeah, yeah, of course, if the mm-hmm. vegetable that you're training on, and then you are validating. Uh, or like a very different color tomato, then it will be like, okay, I don't know what that is. Yeah, you need to you need to validate models on, with data they weren't trained with. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. something that I don't know if they meant they they probably mentioned that somewhere. Mm-hmm. But like, if you don't do that, you don't know if it works. Uh, I guess the fascinating thing is like, how do you how would you go about saying like it's a veg- you have a large vegetable um cat- uh, cat- set of categories of like okay this this is a model for vegetables right but then you have like a red tomato green tomato. But it's in a tomato, um, so basically it's like a hierarchy, right? So there's mm-hmm. tomato and then green and red. Um, do you break those down? Do you break those down, or is that something where is that is that something where you like? How would you break that down if you had to? Could you get mm-hmm. away with like a uh, sort of like a sort of like a multi level um, mm-hmm. categorizing? So yeah, like yeah, I want to I want to know mm-hmm. if this is a tomato, and then I want to know that it's a green or a red one. Um, I don't know. I I think you will have to just create different label them like red tomato and all the the folder contains all the red tomatoes and then the green tomato will have all the green tomatoes. But I don't know. I don't think you can do a hierarchy of like oh it's a tomato and then oh this mm-hmm. is a tomato but this is a red tomato. I think it's just going to be gotcha. based on the labels that you have. You could probably gotcha. train it to recognize tomatoes regardless of the color. Yeah. With enough, yeah, enough yeah, data, yeah, 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 so yeah. I mean, I guess, so I guess it's, it's you one want of those things do. where it's like it's like a like the dog example, right? Or like or like animal examples. Like I want a model that examines all the animals, right? But then let's say, okay, I identify this as a dog, but is it a, a terrier? Is well, it a hot dog? Is that's it, you know, that's like, in iOS 17 now, I right? Know, they have a dog and a cat classifier built in, so if you take a photo. Has a little button of the cat or dog, and it tells you what it is. Tells you what type of dog it is. So they must have done that. 
They, yeah, they, and, yeah. and you know there are I don't know where people I don't know where they get the data from but there are there are sources of data you can use you don't have to like create it all yourself uh, if it's something like that like dogs you can find databases of dog pictures of that's uh, I don't know what where exactly you get that stuff from but um, it exists I know yeah <laughs> other yeah. other guess, people created databases I guess speaking of machine learning I know I believe you've done some tutorials around ChatGPT and mm. uh, integration with ChatGPT where do you fall on that sort of like how do you feel about it having experimented with it where do you think it belongs in our you know for us like where do you think we're gonna where do you think apple is going to take us i know like they've been very good about like obfuscating a lot of that conversation mm-hmm. to being much more of a passive relationship um mm-hmm. whereas as opposed to like uh, microsoft was like they explicitly say oh yeah you can have copilot do you know the suggested code for this test or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, I personally use ChatGPT a lot, uh, pretty much like every day. Uh, whenever I'm writing a YouTube description, that's mainly ChatGPT. Suggesting a title for my video, that's ChatGPT. If I'm writing a corporate email, I would paste the email in my wording, and then I will just tell ChatGPT, improve the English or improve it. And then it will just make it much better. Uh, Udemy description, Udemy course titles, everything is done by ChatGPT. For the coding perspective, I definitely do ask ChatGPT for things like if I have to create an extension to create to convert something from something. So these kind of things. I think it's okay to use ChatGPT, um, but just making sure that you understand what it is writing. It's not all magic. I mean, you have to know what that ChatGPT is actually doing so that's what i also tell my students that yeah you can use any resource that you want but you have to make sure that you understand because i am going to review your code and i'm going to ask you what that means yeah that was the experience of um what uh, zorn one of our, our philicoca friends here who was uh, he's, he was using copilot github copilot that you you have to be able to understand the code that it generates or yeah. you can get yourself into trouble really fast. I noticed also that they this was blown by in the keynote, I think, but they did mention that they were using like language models in a few times. Like they're using it for the um, transformers. The, <laughs> using transformers, yeah, they're using it for uh, for the autocorrect for the keyboard. But I I did not hear I did not get a I did not hear anyone say this. But I wonder if they're not also doing that for Xcode because. They do mention they have a talk and they talk about Xcode features and they say in the in the what's new in Xcode, they talk about the auto um what what do we call that like the code complete the code complete that's in there and they talk about how it's smarter now and they don't say transform model but I wonder if they're if they're doing that because they say stuff like if you have a text uh you know view you say dot and then font is going to come up first because font is the most likely use. And I'm like, well, how do you know what the most likely use thing is unless you've perhaps trained a model on a bunch of, a bunch of uses. Anyway, it gave me the feeling that they might be inching towards something like copilot in Xcode, but uh, either they're implementing it differently or they still want to mention it. But I mean, this could be the precursor to something more advanced because Mm -hmm. you know, it, it is, uh, it, it starts as an improvement of autocomplete, and then it could go into the the what you kind of see on the GitHub side, where it can just ask it for code snippets. I could see that happening next yeah. year. That's what I'm saying. Definitely. And uh, okay. I just got the sense there was a lot of they they mentioned this on Gruber's on the talk show, the live talk show. 
that they, they they even said we didn't say AI ever like during the keynote, but uh, that AI is and machine learning stuff is all over the place and all the new features. All of Vision OS is full of that. Then you have specific mentions of transformer models in there. Like Apple's uh, approach to this, and they they say this in the, in the talk shows. I really recommend watching that. It's like a movie length, but uh, and they they talk about how they're they're really focused on the experience, the the product. You know, like the 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 task you're trying to perform, not so much the technology, like whatever helps you get there. And so a lot of this AI tech is uh, very useful to get you there, but Apple's probably not going to start having advertising campaigns saying, we have LLMs everywhere, you know, like seems like what Microsoft and Google seem to be doing nowadays. Hmm. Now that I think about the wide range of content that you do provide as a content creator, quote unquote, I hate that term, hmm. but <laughs> we'll go with it since it's, the common lexicon. I'm going like, with digital creator nowadays. It's a little less offensive right. to me. Digital creator. <laughs> like, if we had to go down the list of all the... Could you go through pretty much all the content you quote-unquote do create? I feel like I miss a few. Um, you mean, like, types, mm-hmm. of, types of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, just okay. what... Like, mm-hmm. all the stuff that you... Like, whether it's a tweet... Oh, okay. Um, okay. Or the video, whether it's a YouTube video, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so I'm posting like tips and maybe article links or something like that. Um, AzamSharp.com is my website where I post articles. Uh, Usually I don't really write that many articles because when I'm writing it, usually takes a long time to to write those articles for architectural architectural stuff. So it does take a a while to write those. Well, thank you for writing them because I I really appreciate them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and uh youtube i'm a little bit less active on youtube i would say i mean there are a lot of youtubers who are way more active and that's mainly reason is because i'm more focused on to udemy and just creating some courses on udemy so udemy is where i'm most active because i'm always working on some courses um, apart from that, I do have some courses on LinkedIn that are licensed to LinkedIn, but you can also always find those courses on Udemy also. Um, and apart from that, I do, I do presentations and, and all that stuff. I was at New York Swifty a couple of months ago, maybe, and then again, I will, I'll be at uh, TriSwift in September. So, yeah. What do you, which one tends to take the most time to to flesh yeah. out i guess definitely udemy because those courses uh, they can be can be long um mm-hmm. but over the course of since i've been recording in one form or the other since 2006 uh, now i have developed this skill where i can just record the whole 30 minute video without any editing without any break at one go and just not edit anything and just upload it and be done with it so wow. I would say that if you're watching one of my Udemy courses, there's a very good chance that editing was maybe less than 1%. I got I got the impression that you might be doing that because there's occasionally where something will go wrong mm-hmm. and you'll just be like, let's figure out why this is, you know, and you'll just, you'll just go with it yeah. like you would at a live demo. And if you were editing it, you probably would have just edited that whole little chunk out. Yeah, but it works because it keeps the conversation going. It feels very authentic and realistic, and it's not so often that it interferes with understanding what you're trying to present. You've gotten very mm-hmm. good at doing that. It's actually something I'm trying to do with uh, podcasting. 
and uh, you know content creation because I, I on outside of this podcast I do other stuff. I'm trying to put on YouTube, and it's like the editing is so time intensive. So, yeah, the, uh, uh, you're, you're, yeah. I think the only time I edit is if something happens, like maybe there's some like outside noise, or if I'm like com- yeah. completely struck, uh, stuck because of some sort of unknown error or something going mm-hmm. on. Um, that's the only time I would say, yeah. okay, I would take that part out and re-record so, it. So, uh, tip tips and tricks for for creating these kinds of screencasts. You uh. I guess you have you create it first. I'm guessing, right? Right, and then you recreate it in the video. You're not like going from zero, you know, just recording yourself. And he's that uh, good? Yeah, he's not, well, it could be that good. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. But, so uh, I do. Uh, no, as, as you said, yeah, I do have. I do create all the code beforehand. Yes, right, and then you. I, I notice you, you must have like a, a file somewhere you're copying pasting from. Yes, yes, on a separate screen yeah. where I have the code which already works because I've already written that code. I would if there is a place where i have to copy paste it then yes i'll just copy paste it from there yeah yeah it's like uh, the uh i don't know what they're doing in, in keynotes uh, or in videos from apple they always used to have the, the keyboard shortcuts they, that's still a thing in xcode where you can have uh the 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 shortcuts for content what the heck was it called it was like a little Snip, section code snippets, or snippets. Something. yeah yeah you can code still snippets. do that in xcode yeah they used to do that yeah. uh all the time uh so that that kind of thing is useful mm-hmm. okay um, and otherwise, just just do it a lot until you're good enough to to do it one take, like awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and no script because I know that there are some content creators who are actually reading a script. I tried wow. scripting once when I was at LinkedIn recording in California, and they they said, "Yeah, you go ahead and write a script and make sure you have a script." And when I did that, I I hated it. I was like, I can't do mm. do it with a script. I mean, I'm pausing all the time. I don't know where I am in the script, so I'm I'm just gonna wing it. So, so that yeah. that was just much better. No, I I mean I think it works for your your content. Uh, I enjoy watching uh, you program stuff, which you know it sounds very boring, and it is often very boring for for a lot of presenters who who don't have the uh, the ability to just be so good off the cuff as you, you have. Uh, obviously, just, you practice it a lot. So, I just remember one of my younger iOS developer colleagues. Um, saying just being amused by the fact that i was actually looking for articles oh yeah <laughs> as opposed to watching videos <laughs> yeah yeah so i, I was like, like i want to written down you're right with the are you are you are you doing any other or is there plans to do any other um platforms whether it be like facebook I don't know, or instagram or do short form videos like tiktok or anything like that no there are no no i'm no no tiktok no I'm, i don't think i'm on instagram i think i may have an account which never got updated but uh no just udemy for now and some videos that post on uh, youtube yeah so out of all the platforms that you're on mm-hmm. i assume unity is more of your bread and butter and yeah. the other ones are more like ancillary sources of income or um udemy is definitely yes the most uh that obviously generates the revenue. YouTube doesn't really generate anything. Uh, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's basically, yeah, it's like a couple of hundred dollars a month, which is like nothing. So, but Udemy is definitely the best one. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, how did you pick Udemy? Because uh, I don't think I've ever used Udemy before. Mm-hmm. Maybe one other time, and because you know, and then I started using your courses. Like, there's so many of these platforms. So, like, what's great about Udemy? Because from a user perspective, it seems like it seems fine. Uh, but from a content creator perspective, is it like particularly good? Um, from a content creator, 
Yes, I, I'm not sure how I came across Udemy. Um, I yeah, it was such a long time ago, so I'm not really sure how I came across it. But when I started, probably around like 2015, late or 2016, early, um, I submitted a test video, which pretty much everyone test video gets approved. So they just test that if your mic is okay and your sound is okay and blah blah blah. And after that, it's basically your own pace. You just create a course, you just upload the videos and you press the publish button, you set your own pricing, but we all know that no matter what price you set, usually it sells between like 10 to $15 or something like that. Uh, so you can set any price you want, but it's always going to be set at- You can set any price as long as it's $10. As long as it's $10. <laughs> um, so it's more about the quantity because Udemy is also pushing your content uh, in their advertisement on Facebook and everywhere. So, so it's like it's like an app store for courses, yes, and I assume they take a they take a cut. Is that how it works? So you do it for you could put it up for free, but they take a cut. Yeah. So my courses, um, so they have a different kind of a revenue based system. If you enroll in my course using the coupon that I've distributed, like whatever coupon I, I'm giving you, then I get to keep like ninety eight to ninety nine percent of the profit. But it's ten dollars, mm-hmm. so we all know. It's going to be just ten dollars. So a lot of profit. So, uh, <laughs> but if Udemy, if somebody enrolled through Udemy because Udemy is advertising on Facebook and other media mediums, then it's reversed. Basically, I get to keep like two or three dollars, and Udemy keep the rest. But then there's okay. Udemy for Business also. So this means that uh, if you have a subscription for Udemy for Business, you get a lot of courses in that particular business membership. Mm-hmm. And I think my courses are also added. The Swift Data course just got added yesterday, which is kind of weird because it just got released a couple of days ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I get some revenue from there also. Um, yeah, I've used Pluralsight a lot yeah. at work because that's like the system. They had like a business, you know, whatever they call it, subscription. So they had a certain number of seats for the like the university I work at. So you could get... And I've used that. And uh, I mean, it's fine. Like all these yeah. services are fine. But... Uh, uh, I mean, so for for you, I guess the other question is, what do you use? What do you use to actually make them? Do you use like ScreenFlow or or something else to make the actual course? So I'm pretty much a minimalistic in terms of what I use. So I use the mic that I'm using right now, which is the Apple headset or Apple earplugs or earphone, whatever they're called. That comes, yeah, that comes sounds with pretty the, good though. That comes with the iPhone, um, and I use Camtasia. And uh, oh, Camtasia. And for nice. annotation, which is live, uh, I do live annotations. So those are demo demo pro, which I think costs like four or five dollars or something, if I remember. Oh wow! So that's pretty much it. Three things. All right, we are hitting the one hour mark, or if we've already passed it, I think. <laughs> um, we, that's okay. okay. I'm I'm enjoying the conversation, but we have to be be mindful. We Aslan has, mindful. has has Swift data he's got, tutorials. He's got to tons. Write. He's got tons of tutorials. So to if record. you can please uh, provide um, all your um, uh, your contact info, or uh, how do they say that? Um, where where can we find more uh, Azam about? Yes. Yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So I'm uh, Azam Sharp on Twitter, A-Z-A-M-S-H-A-R-P. And uh, yeah, that's my main, I guess, uh, social media account, which I use, which is pretty active. Okay. And of course, you have a website. Yeah, AzamSharp.com. Uh, Azam Sharp. Azam Sharp. Right? That is where I post the articles and you will have links to my courses over there. 
And you have, a, like, there's, like, a Udemy page for you as well, I assume? Yeah, there's a Udemy page. Um, I would just go to avamsharp.com and click on one of the courses. It will take you to Udemy with the referral link already applied. Oh, excellent, excellent. Okay, we'll do it. We'll, we'll make sure in the show notes there'll be links to your Twitter and to yep. your website. Yep. And his YouTube channel. And, his, and uh, yes, and the YouTube channel, which uh, we, we love. I'm subscribed. Yes. I get, I get um, notified when, when stuff gets posted. Cool. Well, that's all we have for today. You can learn more about Philly Coco at phillycoco.org. There you'll find links to our Slack group, meetup schedule, contact info, and I guess that's it. <laughs> if you're feeling generous, please leave a review on the Apple Podcast, Spotify, or whatever your podcast platform of choice is. And please share us with all your developer friends. And one more thing. Uh, normally at this point, we have jokes, usually programmer dad jokes. But I asked Azam to provide me uh, with um, kind of like a advice for people who, you know, one bit of advice for um, aspiring developers, iOS developers, one bit of advice for sort of kind of intermediate to senior level developers, and then one bit of advice for uh, advanced developers. And that can come in the form of a link, a mm-hmm. book, one of his Unity courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the oyster is yours. So. Yeah. I think for beginner developers, um, when you're starting, I think start with the mindset that if you're learning programming or you're going into programming or coding, it's it's kind of like a lifelong journey. You're not going to be expert in like a month or two. Um, so you will become maybe like a junior developer in four or five months, but it it will take a long time. So you have to be consistent and you have to persevere all the all the stuff that you're going to be doing. But for references, if you are doing iOS development, I think, and if you are looking for video-based course, it will be probably Angela Wu. Angela Wu is also on uh, Udemy, and she is catering towards the market of mostly like uh, beginner developers. So her courses are much, you know, catered toward beginners. So if you're a beginner, you should probably start over there. Um, you can also start with WWDC videos, but keep in mind WWDC videos can obviously a little bit there are advanced uh, stuff. I mean, even they're introductory, but you should start with something really basic. Um, apart from that, hacking with Swift from Paul Hudson uh, or the hundred days of Swift and Swift UI that definitely will be helpful. Become part of the community, uh, attend you know iOS Dev Happy Hours and. As a developer, you have to start creating those connections. For a person who is going from or at the intermediate level, I think at the intermediate level you should be you should be experimenting with a lot of other tech well, a lot of other, I would say, architectural patterns. You should be start thinking about uh critically thinking about that why are you using this? Is there a better way to do this? You should not just accept that, okay, everybody's doing it, so I should just do it too. You should critically think about why did we use it? Is this the right approach? What mistakes did I did I do? And how can I improve it? Um, for intermediate developers, I would shamelessly plug in my courses because I think those are for intermediate developers. I don't really do beginner stuff. So if you are intermediate developers, you can check out my Udemy courses. And for senior developers, which I think they usually move into the direction of management, but senior developers, either if you're going to the management route, then obviously you are there to cater your 
developers, like the developers group, you need to make sure they're doing, they have all the required stuff to do their job. But if you are in a senior architect kind of a position, then again, you will have to be deciding on the factors that why we should choose one architecture over the other. So you're kind of like in charge of the much bigger picture. You may not be coding on day-to-day basis if you're very senior, but you will be responsible for the overall architecture, like what sync mechanism that we should use, um, what will be, you know, if should we use microservices, is it a monolith application? So at very high level, you'll be making those decisions. And I think your job will be to just make sure you're available to your intermediate developers and junior developers to, well, at least for intermediate developers, to guide them and to make sure that they are they have everything to do their job. So I think those are the three classes I see. All right. Well, thank you, Azam, for joining us today. Um, Till next time, good luck on your own developer journey. We will cheer for you always. Mm-hmm.